Good day. My name is Stephen Fitzwilliam. I am Director of Human Resources for Henry II. My name is Towers Pocket. I'm applying for the jester position you have open. Fool. No need to start slinging insults around. <laughs> no, fool is what we call it. We don't call it jester. Where have you worked before? <clears throat> I just finished up three weeks at Chucklebutts in Essex, and before that, I was jester to the Duke of Norfolk. Do you know the Norfolk cheer? I do not. We don't drink and we don't smoke Norfolk. Stop that. It's a joke. Uh, tell me a different joke. What's up with these Norman conquests? I want to meet this guy, Norman. <laughs> Tis not funny. Be funny. So it's the Middle Ages, right? What came before that? The Isle Ages? When did the Window Ages start? <laughs> I don't get it. You know, Isle, Middle, Window, huh? Am I hitting home? Do you have anything topical? I do have an ointment I use for boils. That is not the kind of topical I meant. Okay, here goes. The king and his wife were happy for 20 years, and then they met. <laughs> I'm not saying Henry and Eleanor don't get along, but last week he told her to take up bridge. She did, and he pushed her off. Eleanor can be mean. Last night they had sex. He says, I'm done, and she says, that means my boiled egg is ready. <laughs> Why would the queen be preparing an egg for herself while engaged in her duty to conceive an heir to the throne? You know, boiled egg. Three minutes and it's done? <sighs> I do not find this humorous. You're in human resources. When was the last time you laughed? Oh, sometime during the spring of 1156. Exactly. Thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. I'll be here all week. Try the roasted pheasant. Here's a show about fools and jesters. And now he wrote all the toilet jokes for Game of Thrones, Colin McEnroe. I would like to say that our own human resources director is a merry person, a merry person indeed. Nothing like that, human resources director. All right, so we wanted to do a, a show about fools and jesters. Now, obviously, this is an idea that feels as though it's located in the past, in antiquity. And mostly, at least formally, it is. Uh, although, in fact, there are all kinds of ways in which it surfaces in modernity. In fact, I was at one point um, courted for a job as a the jester. They, that's the term that they were using <clears throat> for a school. It was a private school that had very lofty principles and believed in all kinds of things. And the students, you know, I don't know, they raised sheep and they made their own yogurt and all this stuff. And they wanted to have somebody on staff who would essentially question all of those principles all the time and uh, make sure they weren't distracting people from more important issues, which is one of the things that fools and jesters sometimes do. But by no means the only thing that fools and jesters sometimes do, nor is what we see in Shakespeare, where fools and jesters are often fabulously witty or inclined to challenge the the king uh, or speak the truth to the king when no one else can, as in Lear. That's neither wrong nor right. I mean, that was true sometimes and not true other times. It's hard to make a rule about fools and jesters that obtains across the board. But we've got great guests here to talk to you about this. Beatrice Otto is, well, you don't do this show without Beatrice Otto. She's writer and historian from Geneva, Switzerland. She's the author of Fools Are Everywhere, the court jester around the world. Also joining us is Troy Depew, historian and medieval studies expert and educator. Um, Beatrice uh, Otto, we're going to begin with you. Um, and so if we're going to try to explain what this role is of jester and, and how it unites a lot of jobs that have been done in China, in Europe, in Latin America, uh, across millennia, how, how do we describe it uh, so that there's a description that fits all sizes? Uh, 
okay. I think it's uh, one of the key elements is that it's a very close relationship. Uh, usually there's a sort of one-on-one -on -one connection between the king, emperor, whatever you want to call the, the head honcho who runs the court or the country, um, and the fool or jester. Uh, they sometimes had more than one, but there was often this quite close connection, and the fool or jester usually came from a quite a humble background. They would not necessarily be a you know a top level aristocrat, um, and that gave them that was part of what gave them this license to speak quite truthfully. It meant they they weren't a threat to the the power structure. Um, and they did indeed act as an entertainer, somebody to lighten things up, but also this element of being a confidant and being able to tell the truth. I think that's a very strong factor that distinguish, distinguishes them from a whole array of other entertainers. We think uh, of jesters as being this supremely European thing, but uh, apparently China got into the fool and jester business well before Europe. Indeed, and I, I think uh, it, it's not just China. I mean, India as well. Um, in in Latin America, the Aztecs had jesters. So it, for me, it is a, a universal role. It's a worldwide function, and it sort of sprung up in different places quite independently. Um, so it's certainly not just a European phenomenon, even though in our own minds it's a very European uh, thing. Um, we're talking to Beatrice Otto and Troy DePew. Troy DePew, I'm going to switch over to you for a second here. Um, in, in some cases, was the jester kind of a comedian-in-chief, uh, the, the, the highest-ranking uh, entertainer uh, in a world where there were other people roaming the countryside, kind of doing more or less the same kind of comic thing? Oh, yes. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the primary tasks of the, of the jester was to actually deliver bad news um, you know, the term don't kill the messenger comes to mind when we, when we think about that, you know, there were oftentimes if there were, you know, very bad, very bad circumstances, the jester would deliver the bad news to the king. Um, we have, you know, we have many instances of that. Uh, one, one such example was, uh, in 1340, the French King Philip VI, his entire naval fleet had been destroyed by the English. And the jester went to him, and he made the joke that the, the, the English sailors don't even have the guts to jump in the water like our brave French. Mm. So it was sort of, I got some good news and some bad news uh, oh, kind right. of thing. Um, Beatrice Otto, tell us about these Chinese jesters. They had these wonderful names, right? Uh, Adding Clarity Lee, Twisty Pole, Newly Polished Mirror. Tell us about Newly That's Polished Mirror. That's right. Um, there are others. There's one called Gradually Stretching Taller. There's Moving Bucket. There are all kinds. I mean, they've got fantastic names. What's interesting is quite a few of the names uh, convey that element of telling the truth. I think Adding Clarity Lee is one of those. Um, there's one called uh, a, a Truly Assisting Uprightness. So there are some names that, that really give that impression of telling the truth, um, newly polished mirror as well, this element of being a mirror that can be held up to you to, to, for you to have a good look at your behavior and whether you're, you're behaving properly. Um, so the names were, were really fun as well. Um, Troy, uh, we should maybe talk about how one could get to be court jester. Um, tell, tell us the story of Jeffrey Hudson, Troy DePew. Um, well, Jeffrey Hudson was a very interesting person. He he was reported to only be 19 inches tall, 
don't know ex- how exact that was, but that was what the, they reported it, was that he was 19 inches tall. Um, at the age of seven, he was given to the Duke and Duchess of Buckingham as a rarity of nature. The Duke and Duchess took him to King Charles's French wife, Queen Henrietta. Uh, while he was there at the age of seven, his joke was they baked a giant pie and he came in, they rolled it in, and he bust that out of the pie. And Queen Henrietta loved it so much that the Duchess actually gave him to the Queen. So he, you know, at the age of seven, he was in her court, and she actually loved him so much that she trained him in the ways of the, the ways of the court. Um, he traveled with her, and he actually rose to the title of Captain of Horse which is no, that's no jester's joke. That's a very serious role. While he was in the courts and, and as, you know, captain of the horse, he no longer would hear any insults once he rose to that position. He would not hear any insults on his height, uh, being a jester or any of that sort. And it just so happened that the master of horse, his brother, William Croft, did insult him. And Jeffrey Hudson challenged him to a duel on horseback, um, in which Jeffrey Hudson won the duel. Uh, it would be very hard to to shoot someone on a horse who is only 19 inches tall. Um, so he won the duel. He shot Croft through the head. The problem with that was was dueling had actually been outlawed. So the queen had no other choice but to exile him. There's very highly disputed rumors as, as far as what happened to him after that. But one of, the, one of the rumors was that he was sold into slave labor in North Africa. Rumor was that he was, he was in, a, in mines, in salt mines, because he could very easily fit into the very small cavernous areas. So not all these stories have happy endings. Um, Beatrice Otto, we think of jesters almost exclusively, I think, in male terms. But that's not right at all, right? There were female jesters. There, there were. I mean, there, uh, in terms of what's documented, there are fewer records of them. And in China, I can't say I've found any records of them. But in Europe, there were there were quite a lot. And the first one I came across is uh, Seneca uh, wrote a letter in which he referenced the, the female clown of his wife, whose name was Harpaston. Um, and then throughout uh, European, the European history of fools and jesters, it was very common to have a female fool or a dwarf um, and could be either serving a king or a queen. It, it didn't really matter. Um, so there was one, for example, in the Tudor court serving Mary, the, uh, Mary uh, of England and Elizabeth I, the same jester. Um, they were sometimes sort of inherited from, you know, passed on from one king or queen to the next one. Um, there was one in the French court, Mathurine, uh, who served Henry the Fourth, and there was one Catherine of Medici had a, a female jester as well, and also in the Spanish court, some of the the, the female uh, royals had had them, but also Philip the Third and Philip the Second um, had a female jester as well. So it wasn't unheard of at all. Yeah, we we see that in Wolf Hall, right? We see uh, Anne Boleyn has, uh, and I, we, it's rumored that that Catherine Parr and Anne Boleyn, and I think perhaps somebody else had a, a jester named Jane Fool, or sometimes known as Jane mm. Fool. Yes, there there are references in the, and a very good source of information around court jesters is are the court account books, and there are references to Jane um, in the English court account books. You know the things that were 
given to her, the silks, the clothing and things like that. Um, but we don't have stories of, of jokes or interactions with her. Just her name is mentioned, so we know she was there and, and she existed. Um, I, one thing that I, I said in an introduction that ran before the show is that, uh, as far as I know anyway, um, Charles I is the kind of the the end of the tradition in England uh, of having a fool or jester, right? Uh, once Oliver Cromwell got in, he didn't think that kind of thing was funny, and it was a difficult thing to reinstitute, at least on a really official basis. I, I think you're you're right. I mean, I've heard, seen a reference that Oliver Cromwell had jesters, but I, I don't feel I could corroborate that in anything like a rigorous enough way. Um, but you're right. It's really the kind of 16th, 17th century. Uh, they started to fade out in, in the English court and elsewhere. You still had some going on into perhaps the 18th or 19th century, say in Russia and so on. Um, but the, really with the, the end of the Renaissance, it began to die down. Um, the, Troy Depew, uh speaking of the 16th century, uh, and it really does seem around the time of James the Sixth. Uh, this is a, a good time for jesters, and you uncovered one, uh, George Buchanan, who actually tricked his own king. Tell us that story. Oh, it was—it's a very, very funny story. Um, yeah, King James the Sixth of Scotland had the jester George Buchanan, um, and this was around the mid the mid 1500s, and he. King James VI was notoriously lazy about signing official papers before reading them. So during the day's business, he might sign a, a document favoring uh, the left side, and then later on in the day, without reading it, sign a contradictory uh, statement for, for the right side. So it, it became a huge problem. And no one really knew how to go to the king and tell him, hey, you're not doing your job well enough. You need to read this. So it fell on the jester. George Buchanan slipped a document in the official day's proceedings, and the king signed it without reading it, and it actually abdicated the throne of Scotland to the jester George Buchanan for 15 days. Now, we can, we can draw some, some information from that in that, you know, if it had been a – if it had been – he had tried to abdicate the throne to the jester for, you know, an extended period of time, that would have caused major uproar – so on and so forth. So the jester had to be careful with how he did it. But he did it for 15 days, and for 15 days, a jester was the king of Scotland. <laughs> right. Um, on that note, and we've got a, an interesting tweet that will lead into the next segment. Um, somebody tweets to us, uh, were some fools, in fact, quote-unquote fools, asks R.P. Forbes, well, were some people who are jesters or fools, neuroatypical? Um, the answer is going to be uh, yes, uh, or, or at least atypical in lots of different ways. That's something we're going to cover in our next segment. Uh, we want to say thanks very much to Troy Depew. Beatrice Otto will be with us the whole day, uh, the whole way anyway. You don't do the jester show without Beatrice. There is a jester, just a fool, as foolish as he can be. There's always a joker, that's a rule, but fate deals a hand and I see. 
We're back. We're talking about fools and jesters. And in this segment, we want to talk a little bit more about the sense of kind of otherness, capital O, otherness, that seems to be embodied in this tradition. Uh, join us right, joining us right now is Magda Romanska, a professor at Emerson College in Boston, where she teaches uh, for their comedic arts program. And she's the co-editor of the forthcoming Anthology of Theory of Comedy, available this summer. So welcome to our conversation. Thank you very much for having me. One of the things we talked about in the preceding segment was that one of the one of the concepts uh, or one of the strains uh, in jesterdom or, or being a, a fool involved choosing somebody who had some kind of disability, who was who had dwarfism or a hunchback or even possibly both of those or something else. One thing that you discovered in, in your research is that there were people who almost tried to cause that in their children, that it was enough of a good job, I guess, that people may have even wanted their children to turn out that way so they could join the royal court? Yes, actually, there are some documents from the 17th century which advise uh, how to turn children into dwarves, how to stand their growth. Some of the remedies were, for example, a nutgrass, a daisy juice, a roots mixed with milk. Even when you read Shakespeare, in A Midsummer's Night Dream, Alexander calls to Helena, as she calls her dwarf, you hindering not grass made, which suggested she was a artificially made dwarf. So there is even some evidence those scholars have been arguing about it that some children were kidnapped, especially to turn them into dwarves so they could perform as court jesters. It was perceived to be a good job because it offered safe space, but because those people could speak the truth, could tell anything to the king even being forbidden to talk back to the king. Everybody else could not do it except the court jester. So, yeah, I saw in your article that one of the things that they tried was uh, rubbing the children with dormice grease. And I I rub myself with dormice grease every day. It doesn't have that effect. A lot of these things don't work. We should be clear about that. You can't just uh, make somebody uh, into into that just by doing it to them. In in other cultures, and I think you cite Foucault about this, in other cultures, what what we might identify as a dysfunction could seem like an attribute. In other words, people who who have things that we might call mental illness or a disability or or something like that, it can sometimes be identified in other contexts as a gift, as a shamanic gift, as the ability to see things that other people don't see. And that seems to fit into this tradition of the fool or the jester. You're different, therefore you may know different things. Yes, actually, in addition to a physical disability, such as dwarfism or being a hunchback, there were actually a lot of jesters with intellectual disabilities, such as Down syndrome, Asperger, or autism. They were considered to be truth-tellers. Indeed, Foucault, who is a French philosopher, wrote a book called Madness and Civilization, in which he argues that mentally ill were often perceived to be truth-tellers, that they would sort of work as a way to clear social consciousness, to tell the truth, because they were not particularly concerned with belonging or with being accepted. And uh, we see this very often in drama, uh, the characters who are um, mentally ill or who who experience um, some kind of disability, uh, mental disability or physical, are often being represented as truth-tellers. Even in Shakespeare, in Hamlet, the most famous Ophelia, once she goes mad, she becomes a truth-teller. There was a little bit difference between uh, court jesters with physical disabilities than those with mental disabilities, because very often the ones 
um, with mental disabilities would be more of an object of laughter themselves sometimes, and not to say that the other ones weren't, but in a larger degree, and they might not necessarily be fully conscious about what was going on and what was happening to them. In addition, there was a kind of a perception that some of the disabilities could imbue someone with magical power. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, people believe that dwarves could, when they are witty and they sort of sting you, that this could purge ill humor and that they could cure you by being sort of witty and by being mean to you. So there was a kind of a belief that this was true. And this was one of the reasons why they were often kept at the court, to both kind of harness their power and also to prevent them from doing any evil things outside of the court. Well, that's going to lead very nicely uh, into some of our other conversations here today. Uh, Magda Romanska, a professor at Emerson College in Boston, where she teaches for the Comedic Arts Program and is the co-editor of the forthcoming anthology of Theory of Comedy, available this summer. Thank you so much for joining us for this segment. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I want to bring it back to Beatrice K. Otto. She's the writer and historian from Geneva, Switzerland. She's joining us by phone from there. The author of Fools Are Everywhere, The Court Jester Around the World. Also joining us now, Pamela Allen Brown, Associate Professor of English at UConn. She's the author of Better a Shrew Than a Sheep Woman, Women, Drama, and the Culture of Jest in Early Modern England. Uh, Beatrice Otto, you know, we've we talked with Magda about uh, jesters or fools who, uh, in fact, did have things that we might think of as challenges or challenges or disabilities these days. But there was another class that you write about called scholar jesters, maybe on, on a different part of the spectrum. These are widely, uh, deeply learned uh, uh, scholars and academics. Tell us about them. Who were they? Um, there were uh, sometimes scholars or also not just scholars, but priests and others would take on the, the aspects of a jester to get that extra freedom to, to speak. Um, there's an example in China of a, a minister who felt by being a, a sort of loyal minister and telling the truth and, and putting forward proposals to get the point across, he wasn't getting through to the emperor. And he said, right, so I'll just pretend to be a fool uh, and I'll crack jokes and then I'll get my advice across. And, and when he got to the end of his life, he said, indeed, that that was a much more effective way of communicating with the emperor and managing to change his behavior. Um, and similarly, we had uh, priests, for example, in Italy, you had priests who would take on this jester role. Sometimes you had actors who would take on the jester role because it was a great way of having that freedom to speak. Pamela Allen Brown, uh, we only have a few minutes before we go to break, and then we'll be back with a whole final segment uh, with Pamela Allen Brown and uh, um, Beatrice Otto. But so she mentions, uh, Magda mentioned Shakespeare. Shakespeare had like 22 different fools and jesters. Why did he like them so much? Um, why did he, why did Shakespeare? Yes. Oh, um, I think that, that it, it comes out of a, an enormous, fertile, popular culture of the fool, but also a discourse of folly. So you have high culture and low culture both interested in the fool. You have humanist uh, attitudes for the fool. And what, what Beatrice was just saying I think is so interesting because we have Erasmus and we have Thomas More writing in fool personas. When you read uh, Utopia, for example, in Praise of Folly, folly is a woman. Folly is a woman who's praising herself. And it's a famous essay of, of, of Erasmus, which is all a joke, but it, yet it's a serious joke um, about Christian folly, because, you know, who would give up all of their stuff and, you know, and become poor? You know, it's a, you're a fool for Christ, as it says from Paul, right? So there's a, a kind of Christian fool 
then there's utopia, you know, more. So that, that you know, uh, it's a very active, you know, there's a, there's a humanist culture, and then there's a very po- the popular culture of, com- of, of popular clowns and fools and the idea of um, uh, within, uh, within popular culture, oral culture, coming into Shakespeare's world. So I think that it isn't simply the royal. I mean, I know so far in the, in the show it's been talking about the royal. Um, my field is more toward the popular, but I do, you know, I do have some things to say about the royal fools. And I really, uh, for today, I really am thinking about the, um, the court servants, um, such as Feste, Touchstone, uh, Puck, and the Lear's Fool. Um, just because there's so much, I thought I would just focus on those. Right. So, uh, and we're going to have to go to a break here pretty soon just for a quick fundraising thing. But, I mean, Feste in Twelfth Night's an interesting character because he's almost Shakespeare's extra voice, right? There are already a bunch of idiots in Twelfth Nights. <laughs> there's Sir Toby Belch, and there's right, Andrew right. Aguecheek, and there's Malvolio. Yeah, so, so there's Feste, a lot of folly there. Almost everybody is foolish. So Feste sure. is the guy who gets Shakespeare's ultimate joke. Mm. And he's, yes, he's the, he is the wise fool, really good example of the wise fool, the, the, the paradox of the wise fool, you know. Um, better, to, better to be a wise fool than a foolish wit. You know, they, they constantly play with this, wisdom and folly being really hard to distinguish if you say, you know, truth is, is what is not commonly expressed. You know, the end of King Lear is, let's speak what we, what we think and not we, what we ought to say, right? That the fool will cut through and say what we think, you know. So th- this has been a theme um, here, but with Feste, he's even a, he's even a, he even has more depth than that because he's both melancholy and witty and mobile. He's not he's not uh, he's not uh, fixed within uh, Olivia's household. He actually moves. You, you know, he he's actually somebody who he actually play acts and plays the role of Sir Topas and torments Malvolio. Mm. You know, who's tried to get him kicked out of the house. We're going, to right. take, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going, I want to continue this discussion with both Beatrice Otto and uh, Pamela Allen-Brown. We're going to go to a very short fundraising break. I do want to say we are, I think, the only show in America that would devote an entire episode to fools and jesters. If you like that idea, please, when these nice people come on and ask you to contribute, it's important that you contribute while we're on the air if you like the crazy missions we send ourselves on. So... If you like the idea that there would be an entire episode of a show about jesters and fools, you have a chance to express that. No teacher to take me to mold me and make me a merry man fool or an elf. But I'm proud to recall that in no time at all with no other recourses but my own resources with firm application and determination. The king's mama is so nasty she has large pox. The king's mama is so nasty to hang a pork chop around her neck to get the hounds to play with her. The king's mama is so nasty. Hey, where are you taking me? Wow, this dungeon is so nasty the lepers ask for an upgrade. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Tiana Duquette and Benjamin Esty. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Danny Kay. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff trying to make Robin and Jeremy laugh, go to our website, wnpr.org. And now, back to Colin. 
We're talking about fools and jesters. Um, Beatrice Otto, the writer and historian from Geneva, Switzerland, is joining us from Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, she's the author of Fools Are Everywhere, The Court Jester Around the World. Pamela Allen Brown is an associate professor of English at UConn and the author of Better a Shrew Than a Sheep, Women, Drama, and the Culture of Just in Early Modern England. So as we think about jesters and fools, we have a couple of images that probably pop very readily to people's minds. Uh, one of them is Woody Allen in Everything You Want to Know About Sex, where in full jester uh, regalia, including the marot, we can tell you what a marot is in just a second, uh, he is trying to entertain a king who I think is basically Henry VIII. Good evening, Your Majesty. It's great to be back here at the palace. You know what the palace is? That's 24 living rooms and a dungeon. But seriously, I love the king. He's one of the strongest men here, isn't he? He's the only one amongst us that can swim the moat lengthwise. I know you're out there. I can hear you breathing. But seriously, ladies and germs, I want to say that uh, that plague is really something, isn't it? Doesn't everything look black? Of course, it's a, a, black, a black plague. Save it up and let me hear it at the end, big. And uh, I love the new exercise His Majesty does to keep in shape. It's called taxing the peasants. Seriously, the, the best thing to I get, get... can't stand it any longer. He's not funny. I've cut men in half for making jokes as bad as that. But, sire... Get me a fool who's funny! All right, there are several realities actually contained in that clip. Uh, I'm going to go to our guest uh, about, uh, about that right now. So, Beatrice Otto, let's start with one reality. W- one notion that, that perhaps that particular jester is trying to employ is the notion that he can t- tell the truth to the king. We've talked a lot about this uh, on this show. but So perhaps the other most prevalent image we have of the jester, the fool, is in, is in Lear. The, the, the fool can talk to Lear. The fool can tell the truth to Lear. Uh, the, um, the crazier that Lear gets, the more seen uh, the fool starts to see. Um, I, I don't know how realistic that was. I mean, Beatrice Otto, do we think that was based on anything? Um, no, I think it's very realistic. And for me, Lear's Fool uh, really represents that truth-telling role. Um, you find it in uh, all around the world, and it's, it's acknowledged that the Fool had that role. And I think that's what distinguishes him from just an army of entertainers. Um, in China, it's pretty well documented over several thousand years. Um, the, the Fool's really coming together either on an individual basis, one gesture talking directly to the emperor, to change behavior, including things we'd all love to happen, like let's get excessive taxes reduced and so on. Or it could be a group of jesters getting together and saying, let's put on a little skit and try and change the way the emperor's running things um, and get some advice across that way. So it was very common and very widespread. There's, there's a statement by Montezuma, the Aztec emperor, saying, you know, I have hunchbacks and I have dwarfs as entertainers. And... They're the ones who really tell me the truth. So for me, it's a, it's a very real uh, aspect of the, the fool. Sound, somehow Montezuma's jester sounds like a very perilous position. And so, Pamela, um, one of the things, one of the opposite 
possible outcomes at different places and at different times from what we're talking about there. Jesters or, or fools, anyway, have been real whipping boys, right? I mean, the, the outcome that you hear Woody Allen suffer at the end of that bit uh, was also very much uh, Pamela Allen Brown, the way things went for some right. fools. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that um, it was all, all a matter of protection and the affective bond with the ruler and your protection. Um, so the idea that there was just unlimited license, I, I don't find at all um, believable, uh, credible, uh, especially when we, we have record after record in a lot of documents of the beating, the whipping, and sometimes the death of fools. Um, so that when we have in King Lear um, the famous line of the fool to Lear, um, they'll have they'll meaning your daughters they'll have me whipped for speaking true thou'lt have me whipped for lying and sometimes I'm whipped for holding my peace I'd rather be any kind of thing than a fool and yet I would I would not be the uncle uh, so there's there's that there's also another line from Twelfth Night I just want to uh, quote. Um, uh, the idea that, uh, sorry, this is from As You Like It to about Touchstone. Uh, Celia says, you'll be whipped for slander one of these days. Touchstone says, the more pity that fools may not speak wisely what wise men do foolishly. So uh, there is a danger at all times of bodily harm to, to fools and, and to dwarves and to anybody in the human menagerie at the courts. So, you know, I think we have to we have to try to and I'm not talking about the entire world that Beatrice Otto is looking at. She has a very global sense. I'm saying in England in particular, it was, it was known for very, very harsh, uh, what I call bad fun, very harsh sports. They love to beat cats to death for fun. Right. Things like that. So the idea of holding off on beating a fool, in fact, a fool was there in order to be beaten, um, in order to be abused, to pour hot food over their head. Uh, to make them do things. Um, and, and I think that we really romanticize, if we project back this very, like, uh, sort of a halcyon days of the court jester into the, the courts of Elizabeth and James. But it's very much about the protection and the bond of your patron or your, your master mistress. But there's, of course, many, many hours in which you're not under their direct view. Um, you know, Beatrice Otto, this allows us to fast forward into the present a little bit. There is that notion of risk that goes with being the subversive comic intellect. And we saw it with Charlie Hebdo, right? This sort of notion uh, of trying to use humor, a, a very bold and blunt kind of humor, to attack uh, various pillars. Uh, and, and what goes with it, we saw also, is a tremendous level of risk. Uh, indeed, I agree. And uh... There are examples through the 20th century, with, and I think comedians are one of the inheritors um, of, the, of the jester's role. So there are examples, for example, in Imperial Russia, where clowns uh, would mock things and criticize the government. And in one place, when the clowns were going to, to perform, they were told beforehand, you know, keep your mouth shut. And so the clown walked on, and he just had a big padlock on his mouth and, and just made the point that way. And there were also comedians, I, I think very interestingly, in the Third Reich, there were cabaret comedians in Berlin. Um, and those guys really stuck their neck out. I mean, they, they criticized the Nazis, which is a pretty daring thing to do in, in the 1930s. They made jokes about Dachau. They made jokes about Kristallnacht. Uh, they made jokes about SS officers having sort of a, a very rich lifestyle and so on. Uh, and one of them actually ended up in a concentration camp because he, his his criticism and his jokes went too far. And may so I just add one thing I about the about and I would like love to know what you think about this um, 
Beatrice. Um, the idea of the witty fool and the witless fool, I would say that the prevalent mode is the witless fool, the person who's not in con- mentally in control. So the idea that we have of the Woody Allen style of, of joke teller is really a minority. The, the witty fool is, is, is a, obviously of great use in theater and on stage. Mm. Feste, Touchstone, uh, Learsful. Uh, Learsful is more mad than those other two, by the way. Um, mm. But the idea of, of this, um, what, what are like Jane Fool, for example, and Will Summer, these are witless fools. You know, this is how they call them, witty or witless. And so mm. the idea being the childlike, natural or innocent, though that's what they call them, the natural or innocent, um, their childlike status might protect them from the abuse that the more witty and satiric fool who might, you know, really come athwart us, you know, something, you know, it might displease Elizabeth, for example, or might displease James. Um, mm. uh, it was a very different, I think it was quite different status. Uh, but the, I think the bulk of the fools were actually meant what, or, or were meant what's called mental, mentally weak, weak, weak and childlike. Oh, be, I, I agree. So, so, we, so we constantly focusing on the, on the verbally adept mm-hmm. is not really yeah. reflective Go ahead, Beatrice. I, I agree in the in the European context. What, what's interesting, and I uh, also I think that relates to your, your comment earlier about the whole discourse around folly um, during medieval times and this notion of the fool as sometimes having a bit of a hotline to to God through their innocence, right. being able to mm-hmm. tell the truth and so on. But it, it, for example, in China, there's there's no evidence of this link between the court jester and the the sort of mental disability. You would have the physical disability, you'd have the dwarfs and so on, Mm -hmm. um, but not that sort of, the the natural aspect didn't come up in in China. No, we should should talk very quickly. We're going to run out of time. We should talk quickly about ways in which that that, um, that capacity or that role has been outsourced uh, in modernity. I mean, you could argue that in the Kennedy administration, Bobby Kennedy was effectively uh, nominated to be the court jester. After the Bay of Pigs fiasco, Kennedy saw himself as a Camelot with no jester and told Bobby, you should challenge me. You should challenge me in front of the rest of the cabinet. You should do that job. And, and I know, Pamela Allen Brown, you feel as though uh, this particular gentleman has played the role of court jester. This is John Stewart, uh, President Obama. The VA system. Right. Boy, this is, you can't find a better issue politically. Yeah. You'll find almost unanimous agreement right. that we have failed uh, these veterans, yeah. yet seven years into it, we have not been it's able better. to demonstrate the agility. No, 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 but, well, no, 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 no. Waiting times are going John. back up. They're no, going back no, no. up. 50%. The, the, the reason they're going back up is I just told you, you got 2.7 million new folks coming in. That, when you start a lot of wars, no, no, no. Well, hold on a it's going to add people. Hold, hold on a second. <laughs> so you've got, uh, you've got a jester standing, uh, Pamela Brown, right. Uh, right up to the president. Right. And uh, so you have, you have this. I think it's it's developed. It's really interesting. Developed at least in my lifetime, in the last fifteen years or so, more and more people listen for actual political commentary to these comedians. I mean, it didn't used to be um, this way. I mean, having mass media and and John Stewart and Colbert, um, even Ann Coulter considers herself a, a gadfly type jester person. I, God, I really God think help so. us. Um, so, hey, bo- hey, before so we, ha- we have this, we have this incredibly powerful leverage that is a is a sort of voice from below. Only it's now in the media, so it's not so below anymore. Hmm. Yet, and it is something that every president has to take into account. I think it's extremely interesting that comedy has now and satire has, which which often is so suppressed. 
um, is now so powerful. I'm going to run out of time here, and I, I don't want to, but uh, Beatrice Otto, just very quickly, uh, as we got ready for the show, I said to Josh Nalea, the producer, there's got to be some potentate somewhere, you know, in modernity who's had a court jester. And it turns out there may have been a, a, a Saudi prince, but almost definitely in, in the King of Tonga, right? Yes, I, I, I mean, I saw that reference to the King of Tonga's jester, but it sounds like he was a bit of a fake. I mean, he was appointed the jester, but he, it seems he was a crook and he made off with some, a few million and so on. So for me, he doesn't, he may have had the title for a while because he was a favorite of the king, but I'm not sure he, he fulfilled the role in the way we've discussed it today. So people do it ceremony. probably. Pardon me. Go ahead. Go ahead. You think the Saudi one might the, be more the real? Saudi, the Saudi one is probably more real, and and that one was a Saudi prince who traveled with his full entourage, and among the entourage were uh, two Bedouins whose role it was to just crack jokes and challenge and so on, and that that felt, insofar as I could get information about it, it felt more real than the the King of Tonga jester. So people do appoint jesters these days. It's usually ceremonial. A town will pick a jester, or I, there, even in 2004, I think there was some ceremonial jester named Kester who was picked uh, picked by England. But but I guess the the great days of the jester are, if not gone, at least transformed into these other roles uh, for people like John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. Well, listen, we are out of time. I do want to thank everybody, especially Beatrice Otto, Pamela, uh, Alan Brown, uh, and uh, the rest of our guests here today, and especially to Josh Nalea, who made this thing come true, Wolfie for making it sound so great. And if you love a show that would be all about the historical and literary realities of fools and jesters, there are people coming on right now to ask you to support that show. Please do it. Please think about making a phone call if you love this show. We'll get a little bit more credit if you do it now. I'll just do my bester I'm the jester She's the queen Nobody knows the trouble I see All right, you're being freed Wait, what? I've been here for 32 years. Why now? Well, the king finally got your joke.